this is probably the most common story for people to hear in our culture about um, Jesus, at least in his teachings. You know, most people have heard Jesus died on the cross or, or some variation of, of that story about the gospel. But beyond that, this is probably the most common story. Uh, maybe the feeding of the 5,000, maybe the uh, walking on the water. Those might, I mean, you know, there's no way to gauge that really. But the Good Samaritan is a, a very uh, popular story. Most of us have heard it uh, if we grew up in the church in Sunday school. The problem with the way that most of us heard it in Sunday school is that um, it's basically turned into a moralizing lesson. How do you get good little boys to be good little boys, you know, good little boys and girls to stay and become better good little boys and girls? And so you present them the message of Jesus in the Gospels, teaching parables, or, you know, David and Goliath. You know, David killed Goliath uh, because he was brave, and you should be like David and kill Goliath and be brave. It's basically what we call moralizing. It's, it's adapting scripture to a moral injunction without revealing the true purpose of that story, parable, historical account, etc., to show it what it is. It's a demonstration of Christ. And um, this story has, has a lot to do in terms of showing who Christ is and applying that to our society and to our human interactions, our interactions with one another. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this story in a number of dimensions. One, uh, the preamble to this story that Jesus describes childlike faith. We're going to look at the exchange between Jesus and this lawyer and, and what's talked about as the law and, the, and, and uh, the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor being uh, two halves of, of the same coin, one, one's heads, one's tails but you can't have one without the other. And then we're going to look at the story itself really briefly. And then I'm, I'm going to talk about what I like to call ultimate questions. Um, I stole that phrase from someone else. It's, it's a good question, or it's a good phrase. The idea that there are questions that are ultimately more important than the um, other questions in life, such as, you know, uh, who or what is ultimately real, what is truth, etc., etc. There are more ultimate questions. There are more deeper, there, there are deeper questions that, that get to the nature of who we are as created by God, beings with the capacity and the need for relationship and love. And so these ultimate questions, I think I'm going to try to present them as, as more important than uh, some of the academic or philosophical questions. And then finally, we're going to look at how Jesus actually is in the parable himself. This is probably, um, you may have heard this interpretation uh, of Jesus and how he shows up in the parable, but I really think it is the, the proper way to, to teach it. So with that in mind, why are you here? I, I want you to answer this question, not out loud. I don't, we don't have time for you to answer it out loud. But why are you here? What are you doing in this building on Sunday morning, August, is it 4th? August 4th? What are you doing here? Why, why have you come here? Well, some of you probably believe that uh, going to church makes you a good person, or you possibly used to believe that, or you believe that going to church is your reasonable service as being a good Christian. And that's true to some degree. 
but it's not the ultimate reason why you're here. Some people come to church because they want to go to heaven. They think that I need to, you know, God tells his people to go to church. I want to go to heaven. I'm coming to church. That's their, that's their logical flow. But the real reason to come here is something else. It's to receive from God, that is, a, a, a reception of what God has done, a communication of grace from God to you as a member of his people, and then also to be with his people. So not only to receive from God, but also to be with his people. And if that's the case, if that's the reason you're here, then you have received of God's grace. And that's what the point of this parable is. If you have come to see Jesus as the only ultimate, penultimate, extremely extravagant, precious Savior, God and Lord that he is, if you have come to see him as that, and you're not here to just go to heaven or to be a good person, if that's why you're here, if you're here to receive from God, then it is because of his grace. It's because he's opened your eyes. In Luke 10, 22, the, the first, uh, second verse this morning, it's Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Now, stop right there for a second. No one means no being, neither angel, demon, Satan, you know, etc., etc., humans, any thinking being, any being that has the capacity to know who the Son is, no one who no one knows who the Son is except the Father, okay? So there's an exclusive relationship. That it talks about Jesus, how he was hidden in the bosom of the Father from ages to ages, ages everlasting. That is, Jesus and the Father uh, were together from all eternity past, and Jesus is explaining no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And then he continues, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So if you have come to serve the living and true God, you have done that because the Son has chosen to reveal the Father to you. That was the point of Jesus' earthly ministry. I want you to know the Father. That's the point of the our Father. That's the reason it it's begins with that teaching. And over and over again, Jesus is confronting his disciples. From now on, you know the Father. And Philip is like, we don't know the Father. You know, Philip and Thomas have that interaction with Jesus, and they say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How is it possible for us to know the way? And Jesus responds to them, I am the way. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. And, and Jesus responds to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is the purpose of Jesus's ministry on the earth, is to create a body of people who have relation to the Father. It's not just to go to the cross and, and make atonement for sins. That is, a, uh, that is a very large dimension of Jesus's work, but it's to communicate to you who the Father is. It's to, it's to, to explain to the children of God who they are, and, and we know who we are based on our relationship with the Father. And so if we wish to know God, we must approach Christ because Christ is the only avenue. It says the Son is the only one who knows the Father and that the Son is the only one who can reveal the Father. And so if we approach Christ, we, we need to do it in a particular manner. But the question remains, how should we approach Christ? 
Stepping back a verse, Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is speaking to the disciple, or speaking of the disciples when he says little children. Uh, The context for this chapter is not that there were some kids around. The disciples had just gone out on a missionary endeavor, and Jesus, uh, you know, has is now talking with them after they've returned, and they do all these amazing exploits. And what what Jesus is praising the Father for, what he's praying, what he's thanking the Father for, he's thanking the Father that he didn't reveal it to those who were wise in their own understanding. That is, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day did not obtain knowledge of the Father on their own accord, but rather the Father hid his plan of grace and grace through faith by the cross of Christ. He hid that plan in such a way that the wise and the, the those who were proud in, in their own understanding didn't see it, but rather the Father revealed it to the little children. Now, this is a relational aspect. There's the Father, there's the little children, There's also this notion of the Son, and Jesus says that the Father has revealed his will, his plan for what he would do through Christ to the disciples, the little children. Well, the question is, why does he call them children? I think it's because he's making an allegory to the way that children live. Think about it. When a child is born, when a baby is born, they, uh, first of all, it takes nine months for them to uh, uh, bake in the oven, so to speak. And, And then after that time period... Uh, that's that's my relatively low understanding of technical jargon. Um, they, they're born after a period of nine months, and then from that time period until when they can walk, talk on their own, and possibly even kill a small animal to eat, it's at least six years. Now, what I'm what I'm saying by that is that they totally depend on you as their father or mother to provide for them every step of the way. They're completely helpless. They're in what a capacity of total dependency. That is all they can do. They can only receive. And so when over and over again, when the Bible talks about, when Jesus talks about the, the necessity of childlike faith, unless you become like a child, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. You can't understand it. You can't receive it unless you are like a child. So how are we Christians to live in relationship to the Father? We're not to live in strife. We're not to live in frustrating self-effort, but in total dependency, total faith. Do you, do you think your kids, let, you know, let's assume you're godly parents, do you think your kids have any sort of question or worry about whether they'll get fed? The, the only young kids in our church are Larry and Lisa's two, two kids, Micah and Becca. I bet that Micah and Becca never worry about, is there going to be food at the table tonight? It never even enters their mind. And yet we doubt the Father. We, we create distance in our relationship with God, and we, put, we project against God all of the things that our earthly, natural fathers and mothers failed us in. And we put God at a distance in that way. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to be like little children. You need to have childlike faith. You need to receive totally from God. He's not like your earthly father. And so in the midst of this, there's a discussion that happens. There's something that, it's almost like this discussion about 
children kind of, it's a catalyst to another conversation. This lawyer steps in and asks Jesus a question. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? And then when Jesus answers him with another question, how does it read to you? This lawyer says, well, you know, basically the first and second commandment. So he says, teacher, what shall I do? Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and then and your neighbor as yourself. So, so you have to love the Lord totally. Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, it's amazing. Jesus uh, corrects many people. Somebody comes up to him one time and calls him a good teacher. And he says, why are you calling me good? There's no one good but God. Are you recognizing that I am God in the flesh? Or are you mistaken in the way that you look to your teachers? Basically is the, the point of that question. Jesus very seldomly uh, never rejects or never never corrects someone when uh, when they say something to him. You know, even when people come up to Jesus and say, please heal my son, he then rebukes them to their face and says, you will not believe unless you see signs, but go, your son's healed. I mean, that's, in, that's intense. You know, you're coming to the Lord and maker of the universe and you're in a humble posture, but you're still full of unbelief and he's going to fix your problem and deal with un- your unbelief too. That's a double whammy. And so Jesus doesn't, re- doesn't correct this, this lawyer's uh, understanding of what the law says. This, this lawyer had summed up the entire law, all the Ten Commandments, all the cultural implications of various phrases throughout all the books of the Pentateuch. He, he sums it up as, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you'll, you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't go into the entire list of commandments, etc. But notice the depth of these commands. You're commanded to love God. You're commanded to love. That's, that's amazing. You, you can't produce love in your heart for someone, but you're commanded nonetheless. What, it, what happens if you can't love the Lord your God? What, it, what if you just love the Lord your God with like part of your strength? Loving God with all that you have, using your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and use them totally. My dad's, one of my dad's favorite phrases, the word all means all. It, there's no, there's nothing that's not claimed by the first commandment. And so if you, if you talk about an economic view of this, of this verse, if I've used up all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all my mind, if I've used it all up in loving the Lord, what do I have left? I think we'll answer that question in a minute, but you just can't use part of your life. You can't use part of your strength. You can't use two days a week to work for the Lord and then the other five or maybe other four and then rest one. Those other four are for you. You, you can't do that. You have to use all of your strength, all of your economic endeavors, all of your, all of your mind, all of your reasoning capacities. God requires you to submit your mind to his word and to seek out his ways and search for them like gold. And this is part of the command to love the Lord. And so Jesus says to this guy, you've, got to, you, you've answered correctly, do these things and you'll live. Now, 
it wasn't enough for this lawyer that, uh, that you know, Jesus had said, yes, you know, do these things and you'll live. This lawyer, his purpose in asking Jesus these questions is not pleasing God. It is self-justification. So this lawyer tacks on this notion to uh, highlight another part of God's law. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, to love your neighbor as yourself, notice there's kind of an uh, almost, it's like when you're driving down a country road and you see the yellow sign that says hidden drive. There's there's an element here that that barely gets any kind of uh, attention. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what if you hate yourself? What if you are so filled with depression and rejection and uh, worldly opinions of body image and what it means to be a young man, young woman? What if you don't love yourself at all? How can you love your neighbor? People are deeply uh, affected by the things that happen to them over their lives, and no one, no human, is in a perfect state of relationships with all the other humans around them to where they haven't been affected by at least some form of rejection or some, some lack of affirmation from their parents. And so no one is able to complete the law. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love yourself. But even if you did love yourself, you can't love your neighbor because you've just used all your heart and there's nothing left. You've used all your strength and there's nothing left. The love that the, that the law commands is a love that is fueled by the love of God. It's not a self-striving love. I have to love the Lord my, my God, so I will use up everything. It's actually the case that God's trying to explain that in loving the Lord your God, you can love your neighbor. You can come to rest with the way that he's created you to be. You can love yourself. You don't have to hate yourself, etc., etc. And this is the point of the parable, and the lawyer totally misses it. He's being told by Jesus that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it won't be a zero-sum kind of activity. You won't end at zero in using up all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but rather you'll be fueled by that love. And so the lawyer, though, he doesn't want to love his neighbor. That's why he asks the question, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer really wants to know, who is my neighbor? I feel like I've taken care of the people on my block or in our little village, I, you know, I've given a little bit of money to the soup kitchen. I, I serve here at the, you know, whatever. And and this lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? It says the purpose of why he asked the question. He was desiring to justify himself. He wasn't desiring to be right with God. He wasn't desiring to love God for who God is, apart from what, uh, you know, he may uh, hope to receive from God. He wasn't loving God in the way that he asked the question. And Jesus totally flips the tables on him. He teaches in this parable that those who are the least likely to help you, those are the people who need your love the most. And therefore, according to the second commandment, those people are your neighbor. So if that's the case, then really everyone is your neighbor. So in those days, uh, we didn't have like I-75. You couldn't just like barrel down the road in a car. When you left a city, there would be bandits, groups of people who lie in wait for blood. That is, they sit around and wait for someone to come by. And so this, this 
group of robbers, they come by and they attack this man. And this man is beaten and left for dead. And uh, there's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't pull out his iPhone and 911. He's, he's, I mean, he's just in a bad state. He's on the side of a road, probably behind a ditch or a rock or something. And, uh, you know, not at all able to help himself. And so he's left for dead. And then some people come by. A lot of times we just kind of glance over and we just say a priest walked by and then a Levite walked by and then a Samaritan without ever understanding that priests were the people who were supposed to be the mediators between the people of God in the nation of Israel and God himself. They were the ones who were supposed to approach God and pray for the sins of the people. And if they were the high priest that year, they would carry out uh, a series of ceremonies intended by God to teach them of their need for a mediator and a perfect sacrifice. And so this person, this priest, was supposed to be, God intended for the priest to be the most compassionate person in the society of that day. And this priest just walks right on by. He breaks the law because it says that, you know, if you see your neighbor's ox go into a ditch, you're supposed to get him out. How much more a person? This priest is, is not filled with love for his neighbor, but rather he's just filled with hypocrisy. He just, he just justifies himself before God. Same thing happens with the Levite. The Levite is someone who has certain roles in the temple. They, they, uh, were, they were a, a tribe of Israel selected to not have any land in the nation, but rather they were supposed to have a portion with the Lord. And so Levites grew up around the, the things of the synagogue, the things of the church in that day. They were the ones who were supposed to be close and near to God. And the one who was closest and nearest to God, the one who grew up in the temple, grew up in synagogue, would go to church every week, this person too was extremely far from God. And he didn't show any compassion at all. And so this Samaritan comes by, but the Jews and Samaritans hate each other. Okay? Jesus is talking to a bunch of Pharisees while he's explaining this parable. And his hearers, the, the ones who are listening to this parable, they're Pharisees. They're, they're religious leaders, and they hate the Samaritans. In fact, at that time, the Jews would often curse the Samaritans, and they would uh, actually yell out, you know, look at that Samaritan dog, you know, God's wrath be against him kind of things. I mean, they would actually, like, put words down against their, against their fellow human. And so when this Samaritan passes by, and he comes and rescues this man, it's even more amazing to Jesus' original audience, they, they think, no, Samaritans, they're unrighteous, they're full of sin, they, they don't follow God's word. How can a Samaritan do this? The Samaritan rescues the man, he puts the man on his own animal, which means that he's you know now traveling on foot, and he places him in an inn. Not only does he place him in the inn, but the text says that the next morning he tells the innkeeper, so this Samaritan not only rescued the man, poured wine and oil into his wounds and bound them up like a master physician, but also he places him on his animal, takes him to an inn, and then spends the night with him. After that, he gives money to the innkeeper and says, you, you know, take care of this person, spend, here's two denarii, which is, a, you know, a lump of cash, 
spend anything you have, and when I come back, I'll pay you anything else that you uh, need or anything else that you spent on this man. And so, I mean, this is amazing. This is like you find a drunk in the gutter and you get him out and you take him to rehab and you go through rehab with him and then you put him in the Hilton and then you tell the people at the Hilton, I'm coming back from business in a week or two, take care of this person. And whatever he spends, I'll, I'll come by and pay for. I mean, this is an intense transaction. This Samaritan is loving his neighbor with pretty much everything that he has. And so why did the Samaritan do this? You know, if you talk about motivations for people, why do they love uh, their neighbor? Why do they not love their neighbor? How do you answer the question? Well, the question is, is answered by the fact that the Samaritan obviously had loved the Lord. I earlier talked about ultimate questions. In the past, I had mentioned uh, some of these philosophical or academic questions, like we, we called them first order questions, and they're great. It's a great series of, of you know, philosophical topics. Who or what is ultimately real? What is truth? Who is God? Who am I in relation to God? What is the universe? Et cetera, et cetera. Those are some extremely important questions that man asks. But I want to say that for many people growing up in our culture today, they don't think about those types of questions. They're not, ans- they're not asking the questions who or what is ultimately real. They're asking a different set of questions, which I would like to call ultimate questions. And those kind of ultimate questions need to be ans- answered, not just by them, but by you first. You need to answer the ultimate question. And that ultimate question is, do I believe that God cares for me? That is ultimately more important than who or what is ultimately real or what is the universe or, you know, how large, you know, what is the cosmos and who am I in relation to everyone around me? The ultimate question that you and I are faced with in our lives is, do I really believe that God loves me? Do I believe that he cares for me? Am I satisfied with God's love for me? Because Adam in the garden, he wasn't satisfied with what God had given him and he wasn't satisfied with, with the place that he had. He didn't want just to be a being. He wanted knowledge and power, and he reached out and took it without God's permission, and he wasn't satisfied. And Jesus, on the other hand, comes as the second Adam, and what does God say over Jesus at his baptism? You are my beloved son in whom I, in whom I am well pleased. On you my favor rests. And, you know, Jesus, as the second Adam, got the answer to this question right. He was satisfied with the Father's love for him. He wasn't like Satan's temptations had offered him. He wasn't looking for worship alone or a quick, easy road without sacrifice. He was satisfied with the love of God. And so, though we may try to ignore or hide from this question, This really is the question beneath all of our searching, all of our asking in life, all of the things that we do to create uh, either a good form or a good public image or, or something like this. The real true question underneath of that is, I'm a created being. Is God my creator concerned with me at all? Am I satisfied by his love? Do I know that God loves me? And I believe that you can't begin to answer the other ultimate questions unless you have 
sat, have come to a conclusive answer for the question yourself. If you're really convinced about that ultimate question, do I really believe that God cares for me? If you're satisfied with his love for you, then you can become the answer for those around you who are asking the same kind of questions. Questions like, who will listen to me? Am I valuable to anyone? Will anybody love me? Will anybody spend time with me? Will anybody be my friend? I believe that there is a extreme amount of societal breakdown in our culture, a breakdown of families, breakdown of what it means to be a friend, that these are the most important questions. It's not who or what is ultimately truth, what is the universe and where is my place in it. It is, will anybody love me? Will anybody spend time with me? Will anybody be my friend? I think those are the most important questions. Those are the questions that people all around you are always asking. And until you become satisfied with God's love for you, you can't answer, you can't be the answer for those questions. And those type of questions aren't answered with a sermon. Those type of questions aren't answered with an occasional Facebook like of somebody else's comment. Those types of questions are only answered by those who are willing to be satisfied by God's love and not be seeking the approval of man. So we can't love the least of our neighbors if we don't love God. And even if we love God, unless we see and receive how God has loved us, we can't love God back. Well, it'll only be a self-procured love. It'll only be a self-justifying attempt at loving God. So this parable isn't just about how to be a better person. It tells us what Christ has done for us. And this is the reason why Jesus tells the story. It's not just be a better person, love your neighbor, see everyone as your neighbor, uh, be satisfied with God's love for you. Jesus is also in a veiled way saying what he's about to do for us as all of mankind. And so the scripture, it teaches that humans were all hopeless, stuck in sin and sickness and being defeated by death and that we couldn't do anything to overcome what had happened in the garden and, and the, the grounds cursed and we we die in our bodies and and this is this is just the effect that we were all under. Sin had totally, you know, usurped authority and, and Satan as well. And so Satan and sin have totally ravaged us and we are like that man left for dead on the side of the road. Totally unable to help ourselves and without any ability to get up. I mean, this man is left for dead. This is like Adam, right? Adam, God in the garden told Adam, the day that you eat of this tree, you'll die, right? And, and yet Adam didn't die in a physical way, but he died spiritually. His soul was destroyed. Adam was left in a state of where he has no capacity to love God because he had rejected God's love and had pushed his creator away. And so Adam is like this man on the side of the road. He's left for dead. He's not, you know, Adam is still living in a bodily life, but he's dead in his soul and he has no ability to be helped. And Along comes an unlikely source of help, just like the Samaritan to the hearers of this original parable. Uh, just like this Samaritan, a totally unlikely source of help. Jesus comes in the flesh, God in the flesh, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, and he comes to our aid and he sees our helpless condition and he brings us back to life. 
The wine and the oil speak of both Jesus' blood and the anointing of the Holy Spirit as the wine and the oil. And then finally, he comes and places us in an, at an inn, which I believe is a picture of the church, and he puts us in loving care of pastors and brothers and sisters. And then he says, whatever you spend on him, I'll come back to repay you. And he promises to take care of us, and he puts us in a place where we just, you know, we absolutely couldn't have done this without him. We were left for dead at the side of the road. And yet in another way, Jesus also looks like the, the man who was beaten and left for dead. But unlike that man, Christ was not just left for dead, but he did fall among those who were robbing God. That is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the Romans. Jesus fell among their hands and was beaten and whipped and not only left for dead, did die. He was placed in a tomb, but God be praised. He triumphed over the grave and came up out of that tomb three days later. And so that is the point of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan reflects Christ in two ways. He was both the man who aided us when we were unable to aid ourselves, and he also was the man who was beaten in our place. And he died and rose again. And so when we talk about missional activity, evangelistic endeavor, over the next few weeks, months, etc., with RCF and WizKids and every other acronym you want to throw at it, you cannot answer the ultimate questions that are being asked all around you unless you come to see and receive what Christ has done for you in answering that ultimate question. Does God care for me? Yes, explicitly, magnificently. He cared for me on the cross of Calvary, and not only there, but also went down and triumphed death for me where I could not obtain victory over it and has risen to new life and filled me with his spirit and placed me in his church. And one day we'll come back and repay all of everything that we uh, spend in taking care of our brothers and sisters. And so I, I think that is the message of the Good Samaritan. And really, I just want to impress upon you those ultimate questions. They're being asked all around you. You have the answers if you'll see how he answered it for you. In Jesus' name.